Welcome to episode 48 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. It's February 11th, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about how ideas of disease interacted with the role of Blacks in the U.S. military. Our guest today is Karee Polk. Karee is an associate professor of Black Studies and Sexuality, Women's, and Gender Studies at Amherst College. He's a cultural historian of the African-American diaspora and a specialist in LGBTQ studies, and also a scholar of race, gender, and sexuality in the U.S. military. He received his PhD in American Studies from New York University and teaches courses on Black sexuality, military history, Black European studies, race in the American imagination, and queer theory. Curry's first book, Contagions of Empire, Scientific Racism, Sexuality, and Black Military Workers Abroad, 1898-1948, till 1948, came out last year with the University of North Carolina Press. Curry is also written for the Studio Museum of Harlem, Women's Studies Quarterly, Gawker, and the journal Biography and Interdisciplinary Quarterly. He's also contributed essays to a number of anthologies, including If We Have to Take Tomorrow, Corpus, and Think Again. At Amherst, he teaches classes such as Black Europe and Race, Sex, and Gender in the U.S. Military. So hi, Karee, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. And hello from Amherst, Massachusetts. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you on. So this episode picks up a few threads we've discussed in earlier episodes. As early as the episodes with Michelle Smirnova and Fuchsia Hoover, so six and seven, we examined urban and health disparities among different groups within the contemporary United States. And maybe a bit later, we discussed Native Americans and pandemics, specifically in Hawaii with Seth Archer. That was episode 15. Karee's work looks to the first half of the 20th century, and he examines the, the context of disease from the perspective of the soldiers and military workers sent in the service of empire, specifically black workers in the U.S. empire. And while I think that empires are seen somewhat negatively these days, it's easy to group all members of those empires into a single anonymous mass who are also often seen negatively. And one of the interesting things that Karee's work does is to nuance this view and point to those agents of empire who were themselves exploited and mistreated by the society that employed them. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, Lee. And I think this episode also brings us back to your favorite period of time, Lee, which is the early 20th century. And it's interesting to think about how these different discoveries we've talked about with a number of people, as well in, say, bacteriology, are happening at the same time as these developments in the U.S. military and the relationship between the two. And of course, the first half of the 20th century is where the science of race takes off with deeply catastrophic results. So today, what I'm excited to do is to turn our attention from the science of disease to the effects that science has on the people who are living through it. But before we dive into those topics, uh, how's Jerusalem these days, Lee? Did your daughter's birthday party go well? Could you find a number one balloon or candle at all? So there was no number one balloon or candle, and the lockdown actually continued to the birthday itself. So it was very limited uh, in-person birthday and a relatively short Zoom birthday, which was weird and she didn't really get, but we made a video for her, which she kind of looked at. Lockdown was lifted a couple of days ago. Today was supposed to be the first day of school for at least some children, but apparently not in Jerusalem because the municipality here messed up something, which I didn't really follow. But on some more positive news, I would say eh, that we have gotten our first dose of the vaccine uh, last week, so on, on Saturday. It was kind of exciting, but not really. Since you're being used as guinea pigs, was there a tracking device implanted in this as well, Lee? No, it was surprisingly chill. I mean, you just get into this room, lift up your sleeve, and you get the shot, and you go out. That's as simple as that. One last question about your vaccination. Did you do what I've seen a lot of these Tory party members in the UK do, which is rather than roll up their sleeve, like take off their entire shirt to show their like manly muscles as they did this? No, I did not. I did not show off my manliness by taking off my shirt in the middle of the, the clinic there. But, but more broadly, I think that in the context of vaccines and vaccinations, 
one of the discussions that I think is being heard more loudly, let's say over the past couple of weeks at least, is whether people should receive vaccinations even if they don't want to. So what kind of ways does the broader society have to either force, convince, suggest, encourage those individuals to receive vaccinations? And that is currently very unclear, both within broader society and very locally. So I can say that in the university, for example, the university where I teach, there is currently a relatively big debate about whether only people who have received the vaccine would be able to enter campus. In my daycare, my daughter's daycare, for example, the director there decided that she is not going to get the vaccine. So parents are now supposed to decide what are they going to do with this. And I think we here in Israel, because we are being vaccinated much sooner than most of the rest of the world, are having to face these discussions, which I'm pretty sure would reach other places as well. And what about you, Merle? Are you still under snow in Annapolis? Well, we weren't for a little bit, but now we actually got more snow this morning. Snow in a Maryland sense, which is to say maybe a quarter inch and half an inch. But since they have no snow plows and no salt, it creates problems. So my street wasn't plowed and there still hasn't been a plow. And there still has been no salt anywhere that I've seen. So that's always exciting. As someone who's lived uh, in Maine for four years, you know, there's a big difference between what snow means. And we'll leave it at that. But to get to your vaccination point, that's something that's also happening, I think, individually within each state in the United States. I think forcing people to get vaccines, as we've done three episodes on vaccination and vaccines, is not the way to go as many of those people talked about. Um, but what's happening here is, at least in Maryland, you have to sign up for a vaccine through every possible provider that has it rather than some type of centralized way. So I've signed up at the hospital, the county. I've tried to sign up at Giant Foods, which is giving out vaccines. And I've also tried to sign up at Walgreens, which is giving out vaccines to no avail because both of those, the site just crashes every time you try. So just to make sure that I get this, so you are supposed to look for places that have vaccines and try to put yourself on their list. And if you're lucky, you would get that vaccine. And if not, you would. Yes. And you can see why this is a problem if you are either older and thus don't have access or understand the uses of the internet, if you don't have access to internet because of socioeconomic questions, and you can just add in obviously questions of race, ethnicity on down the line in terms of problems that this is causing or has caused or will cause. Are there any walk-ins, any place where you can just walk in and receive a vaccine? As far as I'm aware, everything has to be done pre-registered from what I've seen. And there are ways in which people are trying to get around this when they don't fit the vaccination category. So I know of a number of people, we'll just use one example, who are volunteering at vaccination clinics. And so if you volunteer, even if you're you know, much younger with no underlying health conditions, they will give you a vaccine at the end of the volunteering. So that's one way people I know are, are getting around the age questions and problems at the beginning. But yeah, I mean, it's a complete mess. Each state is doing it differently. You know, I know my parents didn't quite know what was happening and they're not that old. Um, and so my sister actually had to help sign them up for them to get a vaccine. And so it's just a whole bunch of problems and it's state specific in terms of this rollout. And Korea, you're in Amherst. So what's happening there these days? Well, Amherst itself is in a interesting position. Uh, as the state uh, rates of COVID-19 are going down, which is a wonderful, wonderful uh, occurrence, uh, the city of Amherst, uh, or town, is in fact experiencing a mini outbreak due to, well, let's say, due to UMass. Uh, so I teach at Amherst College, uh, and at UMass uh, um, is, you know, we share the same town, and there has been a, a mini outbreak with UMass returning to school. And it returned to school two weeks before we did uh, with, I think, 5,000 students 
uh, on campus and a little over 8,000 students off campus. Uh, and so the UMass administration has placed the blame at the feet of the undergraduate class. And it's a little frustrating for me to, to witness that. You know, we have all been experiencing the epidemic or the pandemic for close to a year now. And uh, Amherst College did, did bring back students last semester, but it was under a thousand students. Um, and this semester, I think we are bringing back just around a thousand students. So to blame the undergrads for being undergraduates is a little frustrating. So, but what has happened is that the UMass undergrads have been placed on their own lockdown for the, for the next two weeks. And the hope is that, uh, that if they're locked down both on campus and off campus, then uh, this will slow down uh, the spread. Um, and I can say that at least, though I don't teach at UMass, one of the results of this is that uh, I am part of a, a CrossFit gym and the undergrads uh, who go to UMass um, have been told that they can't return to the gym until they receive two negative tests in a row. So that has been an interesting occurrence just in terms of how uh, this, uh, I was joking with friends, you know, it's not a pandemic, it's sort of a, a little-demic, uh, which is happening here in town. One thing I've wondered is these same results when it comes to large state schools have been the case across the country, right? You bring the students back without enough money or logistics to test them all, to quarantine them all, to really do any type of actual planning. And then lo and behold, a small little outbreak happens, which spreads, and then they blame the students. And so one thing I've been curious about is, you know, the first place this happened, did all of the presidents at all the other places look at this and go, oh, that's a formula we're just going to copy, right? We'll bring them all back and then we'll blame the students. I mean, one would hope that they would be legally savvy enough not to put this in emails, but this surely has been discussed, right? That this is exactly what's going to happen and will happen everywhere. And so it would just be interesting to me to know within those inner circles if this exact scenario is actually discussed. I'm with you. It, it seemed very clear to me that this was probably going to occur. And now, you know, and you have the, the cast of characters, you know, you have the fraternity house who's now being suspended and, uh, you know, uh, anonymous tips, tipsters who are giving firsthand exposés of what it's like in the pandemic dorms. And it really just feels as though that this has all happened before. And so, I mean, my, my frustration is with the administration, but I will say that at least within the public discourse that I've seen, they haven't really been held responsible. Um, and it could just, you know, be a matter of time. Uh, but overall, the hope is that, that this is um, taken care of in, in, in some way and that we can all get back to classes, uh, whether they be remote or in person. So two quick questions. One is whether UMass is somehow enforcing this quarantine or lockdown. And the other is how did Amherst College, so the place where you teach, how did you decide which thousand students get to come back? Right. I'm not sure how uh, UMass is going to enforce the quarantine. Um, I think that it's an interesting moment. Uh, I think at the moment, at least on Twitter, it seems that one of the main uh, modes of enforcement is through threats and uh, threats that you will be brought up upon disciplinary charges uh, if you are found to not adhere to uh, social distancing, uh, going to parties, etc. Uh, and so it seems like there's a little bit of a mix of peer pressure plus big brothering that is occurring. And I, I think we could probably also look at a lot of historical studies to see uh, whether or not that is going to create the desired result, you know? So it's like, so, so who knows? 
for Amherst last semester, uh, I, I can't think of the exact number, but it was, I would say probably low, well below a thousand. We elected to bring back the first years and the sophomores, uh, as well as students who, for whatever reason, uh, you know, couldn't go home. And so that included international students, other folks whose home lives uh, were not conducive to, uh, to working remotely. And so that worked really well for, I would say, up to like week 12 of a 13-week semester. And it wasn't until the last week where we had uh, maybe an outbreak of maybe eight students. Uh, and so ultimately, and we ended before Thanksgiving. And so we were able to send students home at that moment. And I think that, that hopefully in sending students home, that we didn't contribute to the outbreaks that, that occurred uh, after Thanksgiving. But we knew if we sent students home after the Thanksgiving break uh, rather than before, then students would probably travel over the Thanksgiving break and then come back to campus. And it was more likely that they would uh, create uh, the conditions necessary for the spread of COVID. So that worked well. And what's happened now is that I believe that we've made sure that every student who returns uh, will be able to have a single dorm room and a number of other social distancing protocols have been put in place. So now we, I believe we brought back all, not all of our students, but all students who wanted to re return to campus, knowing that their sense of campus life would be uh, seriously re restrictive. Uh, and I'm excited to see what will happen, whether or not that, uh, that so I believe that we have just about a thousand students who will be returning uh, to campus. And, uh, and we will have uh, a uh, somewhat of a closed campus and we're going to see whether or not we can get a thousand students to uh, obey the law of our small land. So using your comment there about history and learning lessons from history as our springboard, could we turn to the interview and maybe to set the scene for us, you could give us a description of African-American military service across the last few hundred years, obviously in a very general scheme. Sure. Uh, and, and I guess I'd like to begin with the major signposts, the way in which many people are used to indexing African-American military history. Uh, in many ways, we often think about the American Revolution and the death of Crispus Attucks, who is widely regarded as the first person killed in the Boston Massacre and thus the first American killed in the American Revolution in 1770. Uh, then we sort of, we move from that moment and we jump to the Civil War, uh, the American Civil War in the 1860s. Uh, and then the way in which African-American military history is often told, we jump I would say we normally just jump from the Civil War to World War II. Sometimes we talk about World War I, but mainly we move into World War II. And in some ways, I would say that there's often a line drawn from Crispus Attucks to Colin Powell. Um, and that is the, the easy way of encapsulating this history. And it's a history that I grew up with. Uh, and in some ways, perhaps I actually tried to escape because I myself and the son of an African-American soldier, and I'm part of an African-American military family. And so even when it came to graduate school, I think I was running away from these topics because they had been drilled into my head. And so when it comes to my project, I wanted to tell a different story. So if we imagine that as perhaps, say, for those of us who still uh, listen to and collect records, you know, that's the A-side of African-American military history. And I'm really into B-sides. I'm also a, a record collector and, and a sometimey DJ. Uh, but I wanted to find another story that would allow me to think through the issues of history that, that I've been trained in and that I find myself most interested in. And that's thinking about uh, histories of race, gender, sexuality, um, and forms of nation. 
And so I would say that, that while this broad swath of history is important, and I refer to these different moments in my own work and in my teaching, I wondered if there was another way of, of telling a history of African-Americans in uh, the military that didn't subscribe to a normative framework from Crispus Attucks to Colin Powell. So can you take us through your B-side of this record? I mean, what would be the B-side? Sure. I would say that for me, the B-side really does begin with the, the end of the Civil War. Um, and this is an important war for African-Americans generally, because uh, the participation of Black Americans uh, as free and formerly enslaved folk uh, as soldiers um, uh, who were seen as contraband uh, in uh, the war effort, their participation became a signal moment in the Black freedom struggle. Um, and it was clear that their participation had paid for dividends in a sense, that at the conclusion of this war, Blacks had gained manumission, freedom from shadow slavery. And so I moved from that to then uh, going to the war of 1898. And this is where I would say, I really do think that the B-side begins because this is a war because of its brevity. Uh, it lasted arguably a, a few short months. It's a war that's easy to forget. And I begin my, my narrative here uh, because I wanted to understand uh, how we understood America's arguably first imperial war of the 20th century, or the last imperial war of, of, let's say, the late 19th century. And so once it became clear that, that the U.S. would declare war uh, uh, upon Spain in 1898, uh, African Americans wanted to know if they would also be able to participate within this conflict. Um, and the African-American public was largely in favor of, of serving in this conflict for numbers of reasons. Uh, one was just a sense of, of wanting to demonstrate patriotism. And also there was a sense of uh, the numbers of Afro-Cubans who were still in Cuba, who African-Americans felt as though that, you know, we're not only fighting for America, but we're also fighting for these Black people who uh, are still under the yoke of Spanish colonialism. Where did that idea come from? How was that idea circulated within the African-American community? The idea that Afro-Cubans are, that we African-Americans should go help protect, save, rescue those Afro-Cubans. Part of it was uh, in the black press. And the black press, when we think about, was a segregated press. Uh, but And there was an awareness that Black people were part of a larger diasporic uh, force. And I think that that's one of the reasons why it became clear that Black people did have an interest in this war. Now, importantly, we also have uh, the, the roots of a strong anti-imperial sentiment that's also active in the African-American community as well. And this is something that, that really gets its legs once uh, this war ends and the war in the Philippines begins. Uh, but so there are conversations happening within the black press uh, about whether or not black folks should serve uh, in this war, in the Spanish-American war, or as I think probably more appropriate term, the Spanish-Cuban-American war. However, it did seem to me uh, in looking through the archives that there was a much broader consent for African-American participation within uh, the war uh, in Cuba. So one of the topics that often comes up both in your work and really across a number of subjects when it comes to the Caribbean is this idea that certain groups are immune to certain diseases, right? whether it be yellow fever or malaria. So could you maybe at first sketch out for us that general debate and field, and then we'll turn to maybe how this plays out in the 1890s and thereafter? Sure. And I'll say that 
when I began this project, uh, I didn't imagine that this would be the main focal point of my work. Um, and it was one of those happy accidents um, that led me to a history that I wasn't as familiar with as I wish I had been. But when we think about the economic engine of slavery in the Americas, uh, one of the things that becomes very clear uh, is that there was a belief that people of African descent held an immunity against tropical diseases. Uh, and this is a belief that was active in the 18th and 19th century. And what's important about this is that while you have historians today, or let's say historians in the 20th century, who have argued that this belief is true, uh, while you also have had historians who say that, no, this is, you know, complete bunkum, there's no truth to this. Uh, what I think is important is that scholars in both camps uh, really believe that the belief in Black immunity to contagious diseases helped the spin of world, uh, the world economy uh, in terms of saying that, well, Black people are the, the choice worker uh, in these plantation uh, economies that are beset by tropical disease outbreaks. And so you have Blacks who are uh, um, brought to the Caribbean and, uh, and the belief that Black people were in fact immune to, uh, to yellow fever in particular, it flourished. What's interesting about this idea is that we know that there are chronicled yellow fever outbreaks in the continent of Africa, <laughs> you know, in the same period. We know that there are outbreaks happening in the Caribbean and the U.S. South. And uh, I think about where Black people died. And I think a, a, an important example of that is in Philadelphia in, in 1793, where there was a great yellow fever outbreak uh, to the point that, um, that the wealthy Philadelphians of the city, including George Washington, fled to the country. So Rush appealed to African-Americans to, to serve as yellow fever nurses in the city and to display their patriotism by risking themselves and their, their putative immunities. Uh, and Rush uh, admitted after the fact that he had done some cursory research that told him that people of African descent uh, were immune to yellow fever. Uh, and so this was a moment in which you, you had members of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME Church, say that, okay, we're going to do this. And they, in fact, mobilized in 1793. And what occurred was that African Americans died at similar rates as white Americans did. Uh, and so this moment was a moment in which the, the idea of Black immunity to yellow fever became a myth. But even with the reality of Black people dying during this period, there was a sense that their deaths were unremarkable uh, in the larger historical discourse. And was this idea held by significant numbers or maybe by elites within the African-American community? Do you mean in terms of uh, in 1793 or when we, when we move forward? Probably both. Gotcha. So I think that there was uh, somewhat of a, of a belief, right? It could be a kind of racial chauvinism in a sense that, of course, we can do this. I think that the stronger belief was that it was important for African-Americans to show that they were worthy of their citizenship and that they were courageous subjects. And I think that was what was frustrating. So I don't get a sense that, that African-Americans in 1790s believed that they were superhuman, that they just were made of sterner stuff than white Americans. Uh, but I do believe that they felt that it was necessary at times to risk their lives to show that they were worthy of the citizenship that they had, uh, that they continued to work so hard to protect. And was there any gender bias? So difference between the way men and women thought about this within the African-American community? When we move to the 19th century, there was a, a sense that African-American women, whether or not they had a 
an actual resistance. There was the fact that African-American women were used as the main caretakers during yellow fever epidemics. And so this is something that becomes very interesting in the scientific literature of the 19th century in the U.S., where it becomes clear that white physicians relied on the talents of the so-called quote-unquote mammy to take care of the plantation during yellow fever epidemics. I think that this fact led to the lore of African-American women being uh, choice laborers during yellow fever epidemics. Uh, And so you begin to see uh, certain people, sort of the legendary uh, Marie Laveau, sort of understood um, as New Orleans uh, voodoo queen, so to speak, um, um, that that Laveau uh, herself maybe began her mythic rise by being a yellow fever nurse in her teens. Uh, and so there was a, a gendered sense of the labor involved in treating populations beset by yellow fever. Uh, and I think that that the fact that Black folks were used in this capacity uh, led to a, large, uh, a larger belief that Black people were in fact immune to yellow fever. But the facts of the matter is that Black folks died in roughly the same rates that white Americans did. And you have historians today who argue against the belief that Black people were immune to yellow fever, just cite the fact that that Black folks were unremarkable in the death statistics. And so if you have a concept such as differential immunity, and this is a concept uh, that historians like uh, J.R. McNeil use to talk about the differences between black survivors of yellow fever and white survivors of yellow fever. One of the things that does, if we talk about that the difference in immunity, it means that we're always comparing black deaths to white deaths. And so we don't really think about black people dying as their own category of experience. And it means that we often can align their experiences as laborers uh, and the fact that they themselves are being placed in positions to do the work that many people uh, choose not to. Uh, and so I do think that there is a gender difference in how we think about the, the labor of care that put Black women at risk as uh, yellow fever nurses that was a different situation than Black men or, let's say, white women or white men. So one last question before we move on. Could you maybe say how did people understand this difference or how did they explain this difference to be more precise? Let's assume that black people are immune to tropical diseases. Why is that the case, right? Before we have explanations such as DNA or anything like that, how did people rationalize that statement really? To put it crudely, it was the belief that black people were subhuman or less than human. Uh, And that itself, I mean, when we think about what we now understand as histories of scientific racism, it becomes very clear that if whiteness is the arbiter of standard humanity, that Black folks, whether or not Black people were seen as more resistant to yellow fever, or even if they were in certain cases uh, less resistant, that they were going to be seen as subhuman uh, either way. And so I think that this is itself a very interesting history that flows through the 19th century into the period in which I begin to write about, because we're at a moment in which we have medical science and medical research really moving toward a a belief that that we understand the pathology of diseases. And specifically, uh, in 1898, we were nearing a moment of of tracing the pathology of yellow fever. But it still was something that was not quite traced out. And this is is one of the reasons why Black people were given a window of opportunity of serving within the Spanish-Cuban-American War. So if I can just briefly follow up on that question, one sphere we've obviously talked about quite a bit on this podcast is germ theory and bacteriological revolution, so to speak. How does that play into what's happening at the same time? You mentioned the pathogen of yellow fever is being figured out about this time. 
what's the relationship between these two broad areas? It's a great question. What occurs first, I think it's important to note that in 1898, once war was declared, there was a general understanding among uh, Spanish generals and American generals that Cuba was a land rife with yellow fever outbreaks, specifically in the summer. And so it was pretty clear to both nations that they wouldn't be able to be victors in this war unless they found a way of dealing with this epidemic. The other important part uh, to, to note here is the idea that for the Americans, that there was a, a sense that, and again, this may this is both my own opinion, but also what other historians have written, is that the Spanish-American War was for America uh, or the United States, a moment for the U.S. to show that they had arrived on the world scene, that they were an emergent imperialist power, and that they were able, through vanquishing uh, the Spaniards, to prove themselves as leaders that the new world was able to overtake the old world, in a sense. Uh, but this was also, this wasn't just a, a war, let's say, of hemispheres. It was also, uh, in some ways, a racial war, in a sense of this was a war between groups of white men. Um, and this is one of the reasons why it was important uh, at first for the U.S. military to restrict membership of soldiers to, to white men, uh, is that they, in fact, did not want black men uh, serving because they wanted the valor and the honor of vanquishing Spain for themselves. However, yellow fever comes into the picture. And at a moment in which the uh, vector of yellow fever had not uh, been uh, determined by American researchers, what they had was the myth of black immunity to fall back upon. And so not only did the white generals and politicians think uh, seriously about black immunity, this was something that African-American leaders were invested in as well. So uh, especially the work and the writings of Booker T. Washington are pivotal here. Um, he was one of the first black leaders who argued that, hey, listen, uh, Southern blacks possess a, an immunity against tropical disease. Uh, and he uh, wrote to the War Department and said that he personally would help mobilize up to 10,000 men who were raring to, to display their patriotism uh, by serving in Cuba. And, and he guaranteed that African-Americans would survive uh, and that they just wanted another opportunity to, to display their patriotism. And so this is this moment of a kind of a racial chauvinism that I find really fascinating. Uh, and so I would say both through Washington's petitioning and also uh, the, the belief that the yellow fever outbreaks uh, in the summer of 1898 would decimate white American troops, you have the War Department mobilize what were known, and, and I kid you not, they were known as immune regiments. Uh, and so you have immune regiments, uh, men who've been mobilized specifically under the belief that they were immune to yellow fever, to do a lot of the work that white American soldiers uh, uh, feared doing, or in some cases refused to do. Uh, and most of this was grunt labor. And it was a, a fascinating moment in which you have these historical discourses of black immunity, which I see as a kind of a myth, uh, really intersect with the reality of a wartime decision where Black folks wanted to show their patriotism. Uh, and so it was a really interesting moment for the collision of these two ideas. So what happened during the summer? Well, unfortunately, and specifically to Black soldiers, they became aware that they, in fact, were not immune to yellow fever. And this, I think, was in many ways a shock to them because they had to have believed a little bit that, in fact, that perhaps that they were immune to yellow fever. Uh, and again, it's 1898, and it would be two years before uh, U.S. researchers, uh, Walter Reed, would uh, figure out 
that yellow fever uh, was spread through uh, mosquitoes. And this was, uh, but we're still two years away from that realization. And so I think the other realization that happened to Black troops and a lot of their their narratives uh, are chronicled within um, African-American newspapers, letters to the editor, is that they realized that once the war had largely ended, that they were still in Cuba serving as occupation uh, troops. And that's when they really began to get sick. Uh, And they were really frustrated because they were unsure whether or not their nation cared enough uh, about them uh, to repatriate their bodies if they happened to die in the service. And so you have a moment of a kind of what I see as a existential crisis of citizenship for these Black men uh, who had served in the fever fields of Cuba. So were these ideas of immunity just in terms of men serving or were women part of this as well? And then maybe perhaps you can tease out what this complex idea of immunity really meant at the time, since I think it's something different than we think about today. Uh, You also have African-American women who are serving as immune nurses, some of uh, the nurses who also served during the Civil War. Uh, And so this was a moment where you have the care labor that was uh, uh, understood uh, during the 19th century, during the period of American slavery, as still being seen as useful for American military officials uh, at the turn of the 20th century. And those Black women really felt that their service uh, as nurses doing janitorial work, but also burying the dead, was something that should give them broader rights of citizenship. And the last thing I'll say about that is that this term immunity is important because the term immunity is also a term that is part of the 14th Amendment. And so, and it was a term that was was very uh, active within African-American political uh, circles uh, and in newspapers. And so that people understood that their sense of rights as citizens were also understood as immunities. So really understanding that immunity was a synonym for rights and privileges of citizenship was something that Black people were motivated by in their service uh, for the U.S. military. So moving forward from, say, the 1890s, yellow fever, malaria, these types of diseases to World War I, how do these ideas of immunity change? And is there a role here for what's become the hot disease, I guess, of COVID, which is the 1918 influenza pandemic. And so is there a relationship between Black soldiers and the influenza pandemic? And how does that idea of immunity change over time? It's a great question because it's not so much uh, about the pandemic of 1918 that emerges uh, within African American military history, but there is a way in which the immune body of African American soldiers tend to, let's say, there is a sense in which the immune bodies change from from this notion of immunity to a notion of contagion. Um, And it isn't so much influenza that becomes uh, the primary fear for military officials, but it is the fear of sexually transmitted uh, infections and diseases. And so this is important during World War I Uh, Because one of the things that was understood, similar to 1898, where American officials felt that yellow fever was the scourge that had to be dealt with in order for Americans to get victory, is that the idea of of fights against syphilis and gonorrhea um, and chancroid, or otherwise known as soft canker, or what we also know as venereal diseases or VD, that a war had to be waged against venereal diseases in order for the United States to become victorious. And the stigma of venereal disease was something that was firmly attached to African-Americans. And so you have this idea of these immune bodies then being seen as contagious. And alongside this notion of contagion was a stigma around uh, miscegenation. And when you have African-Americans who are serving in France, you have uh, white uh, soldiers and white officers who are paranoid that white French women will have sexual relations with black men. And, and this paranoia, it traveled up the military hierarchy. 
So American officers had problems with black American soldiers having sex with white French women. Why do they care so much? Because they were white men of their historical time. Uh, and the idea of black men uh, having sex with white women was something beyond the pale of acceptability. Uh, and it destabilized their power relations. And so one of the ways in which sometimes you, if you read French narratives of World War I, it's a moment in which white American officers and soldiers began to institute a regime of Jim Crow uh, in France. Uh, and so this was a way in which white men could prove their power. So again, so now they really are uh, this imperial force and that they knew best the way of treating African-American men and turning those men into soldiers, which really meant to turn them into compliant subjects who should not have sex with white women. So one of the ways in which white officers were able to institute their beliefs um, uh, that black men should not have sex with white women in France was through medical uh, treatments and medical treatments for VD. And uh, this is what really blew my mind that this was part of the standard American military archive is that in 1917, uh, you have two American doctors from Johns Hopkins who adopt a, uh, a practice from New Zealand officials called chemical prophylaxis. And the idea was that if you thought that you had had a sexual encounter with someone and that you uh, believed that perhaps you, you might have uh, picked up um, a disease, that you were supposed to inject silver compounds into your urethra, hold for five minutes before letting it pass. And then uh, you're supposed to apply a salve of mercury chloride on the exterior of your genitalia for three more minutes. Now that was supposed to be something that you elected to do by choice, but it was understood that this was a painful process. And for black soldiers who were working as stevedores uh, uh, along the French docks, they were told that whenever they left the, uh, the gates of their base, there was an assumption that they had gone and had sex with French women. Um, and so when they returned, the idea or the practice of chemical prophylaxis was compulsory. Uh, and so this painful mode of social control of what for me was truly a mode of torture was part and parcel of the African-American military experience during World War I. And this was done obviously only for Blacks, only for the Black soldiers and workers who left the, the, the camp, the base. This is at least in terms of what I've been able to, to note is that all soldiers had the possibility of being able to use chemical prophylaxis, but it was only compulsory uh, in black units in France. So that's actually a pretty shocking story, which obviously I've never heard about before. Is that unique? within the, the history of Black service in the U.S. military. So how exceptional is that? Unfortunately, it, there's a continuity between World War I and World War II. Uh, and the main difference is uh, the way in which the, the drugs were administered. So at the end of World War I, it became very clear that chemical prophylaxis was a painful process. And so there was a sense that, well, we need a new way to have soldiers intake drugs. And so they moved from chemical prophylaxis to oral forms of prophylaxis. And this coincided with sulfur drugs being used as a mean uh, for uh, treating infectious diseases. Uh, and so sulfur drugs uh, were widely used throughout uh, the different theaters of World War II. Um, not just for uh, venereal diseases, but venereal diseases were, uh, were at least tested, again, uh, upon uh, the bodies of African-American soldiers. And it's interesting to me is that today, when we, if we think about HIV and AIDS and the different uh, treatments we have, we think a lot about the notion of PrEP today, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which people can sort of, you, you, you take uh, these drugs before, let's say, having sexual activity and you uh, should not be infected by HIV. 
this notion of pre-exposure prophylaxis was something that was tested upon black soldiers uh, and on World War II as well, where black soldiers were told to take sulfa drugs uh, before they left camp, and then they could go out and do whatever they wanted to do. And when they came back, they had to take even more. Uh, and so we begin to see these uh, earlier moments in American history in the 20th century, where some of what the things today that we see as medical breakthroughs have these longer histories uh, where we begin to see the bodies of African-Americans and other people of color really being used to, to test out uh, whether or not these treatments were, were worthwhile. And does this trend or line continue after World War II into the second half of the 20th century and perhaps even into the 21st century? Well, I would say that I'm not as sure about how that impacts, let's say, veterans today. I think that you'd actually that need to speak to, to vets um, who might, in fact, say, in fact, you know, never volunteer for anything, which I've heard my father say. Uh, in the military. But I do think that when we look at who is considered an essential worker today, that there is a strong parallel of thinking about what some of the work that nurses and soldiers did uh, in 1898 uh, that was deemed essential then in comparison to how we understand essential workers today, specifically during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, And the idea that we are in another moment in which the pathology of COVID-19 is still being figured out. But even in the interim, there are certain workers who are necessary uh, for the, the economy to continue to spin. And um, it's, a, it's a frustrating parallel for me, but it seems as though that the bodies and labor of people of color uh, in the United States are, are once again being marshaled uh, in order to deal with uh, a new pandemic. Yeah, I think that's a good point to end upon that you also touched on the beginning, which is what are the lessons and parallels that people do or don't learn? And it's something we've talked about quite a bit actually on this podcast. And if there are any lessons we can even learn or if if they don't apply at all, but that's for a longer discussion perhaps. But in any case, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been great speaking with you both and, and stay safe and have a great afternoon. Great. Thanks again, Terry. So I thought that was a story we haven't really heard before on this podcast. Maybe a good place to start our reflection section would be to think about the ideas regarding immunity and disease that have featured in this particular episode. Yeah, the discussion of yellow fever in particular and how people thought African-Americans were immune to it or not, but more importantly, the discourse about it and how that took such a central role in American imperial thinking was a really interesting story to learn about. Right. And one of my takeaways here, one of the things that interests me is the ways in which we use the term immunity. Do we use the term immunity to refer to cases in which, let's say, humoral or completely immune to a particular disease or so, let's say you're completely immune to plague, that means 100% you cannot get plague, you cannot fall ill with plague. Or do we use immunity as a term that somewhat blurs the meaning of resistance, of you being more resistant to plague? So it's not 100%, but it's somewhere along that continuum. Yeah, I think that raises a good point, which I think has become more clear during COVID. And I guess it'll be interesting to see what the historical reflections upon that are, right? So we talk about younger people being immune to it or immune to dying to an extent, which is obviously not the case for many young people. 
but it plays that kind of catch-all term that actually obscures a lot more that's happening. Right. And the funny thing is that at least here where we had less deaths than in the United States, but I'm sure that probably happened in the United States as well, is that I think the media is still somewhat surprised that younger people also die of COVID. So this is seen as something exceptional, even though if you think about it, statistically, it should happen maybe less frequently than older people dying of COVID, but it should still happen. There's nothing particularly surprising about that. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a good point and definitely the case as we've seen play out. Now, of course, the danger here is that it's very easy to confuse these two things, right? To confuse you thinking that you're immune and maybe behaving less responsibly, whereas you're not really immune and then you might get sick. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the other question and thought I had that I thought was an interesting juxtaposition was the time period, right? That's to say the time period in which many of these things are happening that he touched upon in the podcast are the same time that bacteriology and germ theory are happening. And so what you have is this interesting interplay between the two ideas. Right, and I think that it would be interesting to see even beyond the US military, how ideas that come out of the the bacteriological revolution and so on, how these ideas move into broader discourse and how certain groups, for example, blacks in the military can start speaking about themselves being immune to a disease, for example, based on the scientific knowledge that is being created at the same time or maybe a a few years or decades before. Yeah, it goes to the point of, you know, myths and stereotypes and all of these ideas and how hard they are to dispel, to get rid of, to change. Yes, and that works for both sides. As Karim mentioned, it was very difficult to change these beliefs once these beliefs have taken root, so to speak. Once they're in some kind of consensus, it doesn't matter if you see that blacks die in the same numbers as whites, Yeah, I think that's something that ties very neatly into what Rich McKay said last week in terms of patient zero, right? That these ideas and these myths of how things work, how we think they should work, really carry through both in an academic and a public sphere for much longer than we might realize otherwise. So Merle, you're saying that everything around us is a construction and we should doubt everything. Sounds like actually, it sounds like a an X Files episode, a reference to to the good old nineties. No, what I'm saying is we should think seriously of the power of ideas and conceptions and how they move and change over time. Yeah, that that's fair. So, Lee, I wanted to ask you a question about something Gary said there, which was never volunteer for anything when it comes to the military. Since I know you were in the military, do you have some thoughts on that? So I actually volunteered for a lot, for almost everything I could. But these were pretty boring things, such as guarding some random post or working in the kitchen, doing stuff like that. I'm not sure if it helped me or not. But I do know that other other soldiers in the military or militaries, because I don't think the Israeli military is exceptional in this case, have volunteered more or less knowingly to things that may have not been in the best of their interest, so to speak. One example I can offer, which actually is relevant to this podcast, and we might want to have an episode either about this or on some, some similar topic, is that there has been a group of several hundred soldiers who volunteered or were volunteered into participating in experiments, experiments uh, to test, for example, a vaccine for anthrax. This was was a big story that, that broke in Israel about a decade or so ago. And some of these soldiers are still suffering or used to, at least last time I checked, were still suffering from 
various side effects from that experiment, experimental vaccine. So yeah, if you're in the military, be careful for what you uh, volunteer for. Well, you know, I'm always keen to have more people from the Israeli side of things on this podcast, Lee. So maybe that's a possibility in the near future. Yeah. And maybe more broadly to think about militaries and the ways they work with infectious diseases, right? So in this particular episode, we looked at how military reacted to infectious diseases and tried to prevent its soldiers from being sick. But of course, in other occasions, the militaries have either used infectious diseases more or less wittingly, which is one interesting question. And the other question is that some of these militaries have, in the not very ancient past, experimented with these things. Definitely something we can pursue in some future episodes. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I mean, I always like talking to people in these different fields because we get so many good ideas on future episodes. And I think the military, science and medicine and disease is one topic we haven't really touched upon, aside from your favorite movie, Outbreakly. Yeah, I think it's Colonel Sam Daniels, everyone's favorite epidemiologist. But to kind of move on into wrapping this episode, Merle, so Valentine's Day is coming upon us and we'll probably actually have been have passed once this episode is out. But what are your plans for Valentine's Day? Well, we did more things for the kids than for us, at least <laughs> as of right now. <laughs> but my wife bought my kids to Paw Patrol Valentine's Day shirts. Do you know what Paw Patrol is? It's a group of dogs, right? And if I, so my daughter has not got into that stage yet, but if I understand correctly, there's only one female dog within the, the entire Paw Patrol police force or whatever they're called. So each one of the dogs has a particular thing aspect that they do so marshall and chase are the fire and police dogs but what's actually kind of funny when it comes to my family is my children don't actually know that this is a show because they've never seen the show they just know the dogs so they have lots of paw patrol stuff including these valentine's day shirts now that my wife bought them and i should say they were very excited when they put them on this morning but they don't actually know it's a show so it's kind of fascinating how they can still be obsessed with this universe without knowing that it's a tv show i mean in a sense it's like mickey mouse right well they're also obsessed with mickey mouse and Minnie mouse my my son is a big Minnie mouse fan yeah the powers of marketing of disney marketing for sure yeah so we did that for the kids and then they got valentine's day presents for the other kids in their pod so that was nice they made crayons i can tell you how to do this at some point lee but you take old crayons that are, you know, broken. You take off the wrappers and you put them in molds and then you make new crayons that become, you know, molded blocks so that it's easier for the kids to hold. You just put them in the oven or something? Yeah, you cook them low and pretty slow for a little bit of time. Yeah, wow. Learn new things every day. But I think what's interesting to note in your answer is that Valentine's Day is becoming some kind of family day. Well... I'll just say two things. One, it's not as if I can go out to a romantic dinner with my wife at this point, right? I mean, I'm not going to go to a restaurant and I don't have anywhere to go where I want to watch the kids. So that's one issue. The second point, which is broader, I suppose, is that I hope what you end up doing with this podcast, Lee, is all the times I talk about kids and interesting ideas, you go back and listen to when your daughter gets the appropriate age and you use all these ideas again. So hopefully you're getting lots of good learning. Well, the best idea so far is obviously to kind of take a three and a two candles and another two candle and somehow cut that two candle and make it a three minus two to create a one candle. I expect my one-year-old daughter to somehow understand all this. All I got to say is you got to appreciate my ingenuity. A short question before we go, Lee. Is Valentine's Day a thing in Israel? I know Halloween has become a thing. Yeah, so we're, we're becoming Americanized and Halloween is slowly becoming a thing, I would say. Valentine's Day is slowly becoming a thing. But in both those cases, there are also Jewish, Israeli, 
equivalents that do the same thing. There's another holiday in which you're supposed to dress up and with costumes and stuff. And there's another holiday that is that has been appropriated to signify a more romantic holiday as well, which I never really bought into, but that that's a thing. Well, I'll just say two things. One, that you didn't buy into a marketing holiday is deeply surprising. And two, it clearly gives you two holidays of each. So now you just get more fun holidays to do stuff with and spend more money. So maybe in this regard, Israel's capitalism is really at the cutting edge. Yeah, we're, we're leading the world on vaccines and on apparently holidays. So I guess that on, on this optimistic note of a romantic holiday that's, that might become a family holiday, at least now in the context of COVID and families, we would wrap this episode. And we'd like to thank the LePage Center for funding us. And of course, our webmaster of Verder Kanati. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and drop us a line on what you did for Valentine's Day.